about, or singing, I, I guess I should say, singing a lot about the importance of spreading the gospel. Roger even made that very clear. And, and when we uh, give uh, for, those, for those purposes, um, it's a pretty important thing to do. But I'll say there are certain messages that are easier to bring uh, than others. What I want to talk about tonight is one of those messages that may uh, begin as a difficult conversation. And if you're spreading the gospel, it's a conversation that needs to be had. Um, but man, it ends so beautifully uh, through our Savior Jesus, and we'll, we'll get there. Um, some of the more tragic figures uh, in, in entertainment, whether that's TV shows you watch, movies you watch, or the actors that portray them, or maybe it's in sports, or maybe it's just in history in general. In general. But some of the more tragic figures are, are those uh, who are blessed with just immense talent. Just incredible talent to do whatever it is they are talented to do in, in their lives. And that they just can't get out of their own way. Maybe a, a few different people come to your mind, a few different characters or something. And maybe they're given breaks throughout their life. They're given second chances because their abilities are so great. We have to have this person or this group or something like that succeed. And every time you think they're, they're back on the wagon or, or maybe it's off the wagon or whatever it is, whenever they're in the place they need to be, who knows how long it actually lasts. And they're back where they shouldn't be. And if you're like me... You, these stories are so frustrating because you look at them and it's like, man, if I, just had, if I just had half the talent you had, if I had half the talent you had, the, the great things that I could do or something like that. The Bible contains stories like that. Man, if I was just in that person's situation, how much better my life would be. Maybe Jacob comes to mind. Did he have good parents? Yeah. Um, maybe King Saul or the rich young ruler. There's a lot of different people who are given these great opportunities and yet fail. Maybe die miserably or, or fail in the task that they're given. But perhaps the most obvious one is the story of Israel, right? Except with Israel, they don't have any great abilities. There, there's, there's nothing redeeming about them necessarily. Actually, the scriptures even make that pretty clear. Uh, Israel, there's nothing great about them except that God constantly chooses to give them these chances. There's nothing about them that screams, oh, well, we got to give these guys another shot. And yet God chooses to do so. And sure, there's some bright spots in Israel's history. Um, time of Joshua, perhaps, is, is, is one of the brightest. Except what comes right after Joshua, but the time of the Judges, and you just see this downward spiral. Where at the end of Judges, everyone is doing whatever is right in their own eyes, right? Well, if we're watching uh, the Bible on TV or something like that, I imagine it, it's kind of like one of those, those cheap horror movies. Where you're looking at them and you're saying, no, don't go in there. He's right over there. Don't go there. And yet, every single time, just like those cheap horror movies, they never listen. They always do the very thing they're not supposed to do. Israel always makes the obvious wrong move. Never really listening or learning from their mistakes. Was it always that way with Israel, though? Was it always that way with God's people? Well, no. Uh, Abraham, sure, he made mistakes, but Abraham uh, is a testament of faith. Uh, the book of Hebrews makes that very clear. Abraham is a wonderful testament of faith, faith being the very thing that Israel struggles with throughout their time. So where did it go wrong? What happened? How, how did Israel become so faithless? Well, I'll, what I want to suggest this evening is that it didn't happen overnight. 
What you see in the story of Israel is a long progression. Go ahead and open up to Isaiah chapter 9. Let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 9. What you get in Isaiah 9, really beginning in verse 8, going all the way down to chapter 10 and verse 4, that's a pretty good section right there, you get this prophecy that's given to Israel, a prophecy of Israel's destruction. But what you see is this, this progression where things are progressively getting worse the more and more Israel refuses to listen. If you look at verses 8 through 10, we're not going to read uh, this particular passage, but looking at verses 8 through 10, the first thing that you see is their, their wickedness. It says uh, in verses 9 and 10 that they assert their pride. There's this arrogance of heart. They're saying things like, okay, look, yeah, sure, God may have struck down our brick walls and our brick homes, but you know what we're going to do? We're going to build these, these walls and homes of stone. We'll see what God does then. Or, sure, God has destroyed our sycamores, but we got these cedars over here. We'll just build everything there. Do what you want to, God. We're good over here. We can take care of ourselves. They refuse to learn from their own mistakes. But also from God's own punishment. Wasn't that the reason why God did that was so that they could turn back to him? Instead, they used their own mistakes and consequently God's punishment, as a means of boasting of their own persistence, boasting of their own strength. So what does God do? Well, you see in verses 11 and 12 that God punishes them, right? God destroys them with these enemies of Israel. You have the uh, Arameans who are on the east, you have the Philistines who are on the west, and I believe the picture is, Israel, you're surrounded. You're not going anywhere. You are going to be destroyed. And yet, at the end of verse 12, we read this repeated phrase. You see it four times in this section. It says that his anger does not turn away. His hand is still stretched out. Essentially, God's wrath is not satisfied. Even though he sends these enemies against Israel, his wrath is not satisfied. Why? Because they continue in their sin. They don't learn. They're not learning from these mistakes. But that phrase, God's hand is still stretched out. You may recognize that phrase from other places. That phrase is actually used in two different ways and with very opposite meanings. God's hand stretched out is used in other places in the Bible, also here in, in, in Isaiah, to show God's love, to show God's redeeming quality. He reaches out his hand and just so long as you're ready to reach out back at him, he will redeem you. He'll snatch you right back up. But here, the language of salvation is the language of destruction. God's hand is stretched out, but not to save, but to destroy. God's wrath is there. And that's the New Testament language as well. Salvation of the righteous means condemnation of the wicked. You never have one without the other. But Israel refuses to learn. They refuse to listen. And we see this same pattern. Continue. Look at the next few verses. Particularly in verse 13, it says, Yet the people do not turn back to him who struck them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. And so we see their wickedness continue. Only this time, it is shown through the leaders. You have these elders and prophets who are speaking these false words. They're leading the people astray. Their wickedness is being brought to the people. It says that they have no pity for the weak. That's repeated again in chapter 10. They only speak foolishness. So God punishes them uh, again. He cuts the leaders off, and it's so easy for him to do. It's like peeling down a palm branch. It's like pulling up a bulrush. It's going to be done all in a day. You're going to be out of here. 
However, once again, we see that phrase, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. God's anger is not satisfied. Why? Because they continue to ignore the consequences of their rebellion. And things just get worse. We see in the next set of uh, verses that their wickedness continues. Only this time, it's kind of just speaking of generally. It increases now. It just talks about their wickedness. It says that, uh, I, I like the imagery that Isaiah uses here. He compares their sin early on to this flame that was started by like a briar or a thorn. Pretty small, right? But then... It continues, it grows and it grows, and it says it rolls upward in a column of smoke. What's happened with their sin except it has increased and increased and increased to the point now you're suffocated by this smoke. It says in verse 19, by the fury of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, which gives a pretty new meaning to what uh, Moses says and the Hebrew writer repeats, our God is a consuming fire. But look at what is said at the end of that verse. Yes, by the fury of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No man spares his brother. The people just make it worse. The people serve as fuel to this flame because they're lying. They're speaking falsehood to, uh, to others. They take advantage of the weak, and they're killing their own brothers. Their sin acts as this fuel to the fire. And look what happens in verses 20 and 21. Before, it was God punishing the people, but now God doesn't even have to punish anymore because they're punishing themselves. They are self-destructing right in front. They can't get out of their own way. They, just, they devour their own flesh. Have you ever felt that way before? You look at something in your life and you realize, I am only in this situation because I keep doing the same thing over and over. Look at the imagery there. It says that they have something in their left hand, they eat it and they're not satisfied. They have something in their right hand, they eat it and they're not satisfied. Well, now they're empty, so what do they start doing? They start consuming their own flesh. Manasseh devours Ephraim, Ephraim Manasseh. And we see again in verse 21 that same phrase. His anger does not turn away. His hand is still stretched out. And all that's left for Israel to do, if you go into chapter 10, chapter 10 and verse 4, all that's left for them to do is crouch among the captives or fall among the slain. It wasn't overnight. What you see is a sad picture that started with arrogance. It started with them being able to say, you know what, God? I know that you're doing this because we have been wicked, but look how strong we are. Look what I can do to pull myself up. They refuse to listen and heed consequences. Well, we read a similar uh, type of progression in Romans chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there. We see a similar progression in Romans chapter 1. The message in Isaiah chapter 9 and 10 was directed to God's people, specifically the northern tribes of Israel. But the people described here in Romans chapter 1 are much more general. They're not specific to any tribe or nation. It seems as though it's talking about just people in general. But 
But regardless, we see that same pattern. Now, even though what I want to look at begins in verse 21, I feel like we need to set some context a little bit, which is dangerous to do in Romans because then you've got to keep going back and back and back. But if you look at verse 16, chapter 1 and verse 16, uh, in my opinion, serves as like a thesis statement for, for, the, for the book. Look at chapter 1 and verse 16. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Much of the discussion in Romans is centered around God's salvation for His people, and how it is that He does that. Well, look at verse 17. He says, For in it the righteousness of God, which is a, which is a phrase that that Paul uses throughout the book, almost serving as like a short statement to say, here's how God saves his people, this righteousness of God. It says that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So, the righteousness of God, or, or God's means of saving his people, has been revealed. It is known. You can, you can find it. It's been revealed to you. Specifically, through his word, right? That's when he quotes uh, Habakkuk 2 and verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. How are people going to be saved? It's going to be through faith. Likewise, you go in verse 18. What else has been revealed? Look at verse 18. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed. The wrath of God is also revealed, and it says here, to the unrighteous. So, salvation for the righteous has been revealed, specifically through His Word, and now the wrath of God has also been revealed to the unrighteous. But how has it been revealed? Well, that's when we get to some pretty familiar verses, verses 19 and 20. Uh, we typically go to these verses to show the existence of God, right? I mean, just look at nature. Look how wonderful nature is. Look how beautifully it works. His evidence uh, of His existence is all around us. And that's certainly true. But the context of these verses isn't just that God Himself exists, but God's wrath is evident. It's been revealed to you. So much so that you look at verse 20 that you are without excuse. The unrighteous are without excuse to know that God exists and his wrath is evident. I believe that's the point of what he's getting to in the verses that we're going to read here in a second. The unrighteous should observe the terrible consequences of, of living the life that they're living, consequences that God has made evident, and those observations ought to encourage them to turn back, turn to God. It's not that everything has been re revealed in such a way that you perfectly understand why everything is happening. But it's at least to the extent where you know who to turn to. I need to go to the Creator because He is the one who is allowing these things to happen. But as we'll read, people in general uh, don't do that. Look at verse 21. Let's read verses 21 through 25. For even though they knew God, they being the, the unrighteous, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. 
For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Like with Israel, we see wickedness. We see wickedness in these verses. And it starts out what we might think of as rather small. It's just arrogance. They're just being a little prideful after all. They knew God, but they didn't want to give Him honor or credit, perhaps, for certain things that were going on. Instead, they give in to this natural desire of exchanging something that is real for something that we just think is better or more pleasing to ourselves. We see this list of exchanges, right? They exchange what God has revealed for their own foolish logic and speculations, because we all love to live in the hypothetical. We all love to live in uh, what ifs or in speculations. It's a whole lot easier to live there sometimes. They exchange wisdom for foolishness. They exchange the invisible attributes of the incorruptible God for physical things, even though they're corruptible. They're going to die. They're going to go away. But these are at least right there in front of us, and we like that. They exchange the truth for a lie, and they exchange the Creator for that which was created. And why? Why do people do this? Because why serve God when you can be God yourself? And I think that's one of the greatest temptations for us. As people who are created in God's image, there is something inherently godly about us. And the temptation is to assert ourselves to that spot. And that's arrogance. And that's pride. But this doesn't happen without punishment. Perhaps a reference to how God's wrath is evident, it says in verse 24, that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And it says that this is done intentionally. We see a, a repeated phrase throughout uh, Romans chapter 1, and that is that God gave them over. See, that God gave them over. God allows them to continue in their righteousness, but it's, or unrighteousness, I should say. But it says in verse 24 that God gave them over so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Now, I'm not exactly sure what that phrase means, what it means to have their bodies dishonored among them, but it sounds a lot uh, to me like a natural consequence, evidence of God's wrath. It's not something that's good, that's for sure. God allowed that to happen because of their wickedness. God gave them over so that this thing would happen to them. We'll keep reading, beginning in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to the degrading passions. For the women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So the people's wickedness continues. And when natural desires no longer satisfy, you start to look elsewhere. Part of the danger of constantly giving in to natural desires and callously refusing to listen or heed consequences that come with it is experimentation. And it can be with a number of different things, not explicitly what's mentioned here. But what we start to do when, when, and when one sin no longer satisfies is we start to either magnify that one or start looking in other places. They continue this exchanging. Paul says... 
that they exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And this is a specific reference to homosexuality and the lifestyle that comes with it. Now, I'll say as an aside, there are people, Christians, who, professing to be wise, foolishly claim that the Bible never condemns homosexuality. Saying things like, well, uh, it condemns sexual immorality, which sometimes, they would say, is mistranslated homosexuality. Therefore, it never strictly condemns homosexuality. I believe these people blatantly ignore passages like, like this. But like before, we see evidence of God's wrath here. There is a punishment that comes with it. Verse 27 says that they, uh, they receive in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And then we see again at the beginning of this section that God gave them over to this. God allowed this to happen, but not without punishment. These indecent acts that they're doing, they lead to this penalty, which they now live with in their, in their bodies. Again, we're not going to speculate as to what that might mean, but what we can agree on is it's not good. Whatever is happening here, it's not good. It reads like a consequence of sorts of them giving themselves over to these unnatural desires. Like we read in Isaiah 9 uh, and 10, these punishments or, or these consequences serve as evidence uh, for God and a reason to acknowledge Him and to return to Him. It's almost as if these are natural consequences that are coming about and we ought to stop and listen, their pain was intended uh, to humble them. Um, in, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, as I learned from a senior thesis presentation recently, uh, from our own Kate Mills. See, Simon's quoting from the wrong people. That's what he's doing. Um, no, in the Chronicles of Narnia, specifically the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's this character. His name is Eustace, and it says that he is filled with dragonish thoughts. To the point where he becomes a dragon himself. That's what C.S. Lewis writes. So his own bad behavior turns him into something he never intended to be. And even though later he's changed back into a boy by Aslan, this Christ-like character in the books, that only happens after he suffers the consequences that come with it. And that only happens after those consequences lead him to humbling himself to see himself as a burden to everyone else around him in this dragon-like state. Pain is intended to humble. Are we listening? But they don't humble themselves back in Romans chapter 1. They don't humble themselves. Read with me in uh, beginning of verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So the wickedness continues. The things get worse and worse. Their sins have progressed to a point where they are of depraved minds. 
And the best way to describe them is that they are filled with all unrighteousness. It's like they began as just unrighteous at the beginning, but now they are filled with all unrighteousness. And the punishment that we see is a society that works against itself, is a society that cannot stand. It is self-destructing in the way that it operates. And God gives them over to these things. People could argue, though I think unsuccessfully, but, but you could argue, I'll admit, in, strictly in this passage, that the previous desires of sin, uh, uh, the, the previous things that they were committing, were victimless. Uh, sins that would only affect themselves. I mean, after all, we've seen it in the earlier consequences, uh, in those first two sections that we looked at, that it's their own bodies that are dishonored, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, I don't think any sin is, is in a bottle. I think all sin is going to affect someone else in, in one way, shape, or form. But at least in the punishments that we've seen in those first two sections, it seems much more internal. But now, these sins come about, and they leave behind a long trail of victims. You see people who are taken advantage of with money. You see people who are lied to. People who have loved ones killed, murdered. You see reputations that are tainted. You see the smallest of sins are unforgiven because everyone is unmerciful. You see that there's no order in the home, no order in society, no order in religion. What you have is a foundation that cannot stand. A foundation not on rock, but on sand. And to make matters worse, they perpetuate this cycle. It's interesting what's said in verse 32. They know the ordinance of God. They know that those who practice such things are worthy of death, possibly because they've seen other people die practicing these things. And yet, they don't heed that warning. They do the very same thing. But again, to perpetuate that cycle, they not only just do it themselves, but they honor, promote, and exalt those who teach and do the same. What you see is a broken world. What you see is a world that denies God, denies its creator. But really what you see is the progression of sin. And what sin will inevitably do? What begins with arrogance and a failure to be thankful a failure to honor God ends with this self-defeating, self-destructive society whose only fate is destruction, whether it happens on their own terms or from God. Again, are we listening? What do we do with this, though? What do we do with Romans chapter 1? What can we take from these passages? Well, look at Romans chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, you, are, or you have no excuse. As you're reading this, you have no excuse to keep doing whatever it is that you know is sinful. You don't have an excuse to do that. Because we live in the same broken world that they live in. We live in, this, in a world where we can see evidence of God's existence, but we can also clearly see evidence of God's wrath. But are we choosing to listen to it? 
we are without excuse. Because not only do we live in that same world, but we have passages like this that lay it out so clearly. And if we want to deny that this is what happens, we don't have to look very far. The writer of Hebrews says something similar in Hebrews chapter 2. It says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You know what's surrounded around that? Is that God has revealed His will through His prophets. God has revealed His will through these angels. And it, man, if, 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 if their words were unalterable, how are we going to escape? We have the words of Jesus. We have the words, the, the words of the apostles who heard directly from Jesus. How will we escape if we neglect them? The answer is we won't. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. First Corinthians 10, Paul wants to give you a reminder of sorts. Paul brings his readers um, back to the days of Moses, when, uh, when God's people were wandering in the wilderness. And he says in those first five verses that they were given such wonderful blessings. These great blessings, they were given deliverance. They were given food and drink and, and sometimes in some pretty miraculous ways. And yet in verse 5, God was not pleased with them. Why? Because they're complaining. They're grumbling against God. And so what does God do? Well, He punishes them. He laid them low in the wilderness. God made them wander around long enough that they would die out in the wilderness. Well, why does Paul say this? Verse 6, these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. What was it that they were craving? What were the people of God at that point craving? You could say it was food. You could say it was water. You could say it was different types of food. But what they craved the most was their words to be the words that they lived by. They wanted to be the ones to dictate what was right and what was wrong. They didn't want to listen to Moses. They didn't want to listen to God. Does that describe us? Are we listening to Israel? Look at what Paul says later, verses 7 through 10. Paul talks about how they worshipped idols and they were practicing sexual immorality as they did that. And what did God do? 23,000 were killed in one day, reference to Numbers 25. They challenged God. They challenged God's leader and Moses. And so God punishes them with snakes. Numbers 21. They grumble and so they are destroyed by the destroyer. Why does God bring, or why does Paul bring these things up? So that they would learn. Verse 11. Now these things happen to them as an example. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. These stories serve as examples to us. Further evidence of God's existence, but also God's wrath. Before we start to take pride in who we are, maybe who our parents are, maybe the church that we go to, maybe how much we know, or maybe how many great things we've done in our lives, look at Israel. Pride comes before the fall. Arrogance is not satisfied Arrogance leads to more. We see that in Israel. We see that in Romans chapter 1. We are without excuse. We must humble ourselves and see hardships and consequences in this life as a reason to turn to God. Now, 
I don't mean to suggest that every single hardship in our lives is a result of our own sin. We live in a broken world. Romans chapter 1 is the world we live in. We live in that final section there because there are so many victims because people choose to do the wrong thing. And no doubt there are many victims in this room right now. But at the same time, every single one of us must humbly look inside and think about our own mistakes and what sufferings we are going through because of that. If there was any point that I wanted to make in this lesson, it's that stop sinning. We need to stop sinning because what we must see is that it's never satisfied with that one thing. We must look at the example of, 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 of Isaiah chapter 9, Israel there who arrogantly ignored God's punishment and used it as a way to, to boast of their abilities. And they end up self-imploding. we got to look at Paul and what he says in Romans chapter 1 and how our sins will progress. And if we callously give in to natural desires, the sins and their consequences will only get worse. The yoke that comes with that will only get heavier. So why not exchange yokes? Turn to Matthew chapter 11. I'll have it on the screen, but you can look at Matthew 11. We must look at our mistakes and come to Jesus. Because while God does punish, and I hope, I hope tonight we've been able to see that the, ev the evidence of God's wrath, it certainly exists. But throughout the Old Testament, but especially through Jesus, the evidence of God's love is here. Verse 28, come to me. Jesus speaking, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The fact is, everyone is under a yoke of some kind. And we've got to acknowledge that. We've got to admit that. But Jesus is inviting you to exchange yokes. The yoke of this world, uh, one that controls your life more and more, one that controls your life more than you're probably willing to admit. That's certainly been my life. One that leads to unforeseen and unwanted consequences, one that is never satisfied, one that only brings about heavier burdens for yourself and for others. Why not exchange that yoke for the one Jesus offers? Now, it's still a yoke. It's still difficult. But it is easy and light by comparison. And it is one that ends in rest. So, let us learn this evening. Learn from the story of Israel. Learn from those who are without excuse in Romans 1. Learn from our own consequences and recognize the evidence of God and His wrath. And to return to Him. Humble yourself. Come to Jesus. Take His yoke and you will find rest for your souls. Are you in need of that tonight? If you're not a Christian, you are under the yoke of this world. And while there might be some entertaining things that you are enjoying in your life, I hope you're able to humbly reflect on your own life and see that where you are headed is not where you need to go. Come to Jesus. Allow Him to give you rest. If you have any need of this invitation, please come up now while we stand and sing.